You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. And uh, that's us, Communication Mixdown. Welcome to another edition of the show. This week we're looking at language and communication, the language of the classroom and the language of the street. Yesterday it was widely reported that international test results for maths and science showed Australian students sliding badly backwards relative to other countries. It seems even Kazakhstan excuse me, has pushed ahead of us over the past four years. Now, there's lots of reasons for these results being trotted out. Misty Adonahue is an associate professor of language and literature at the University of Canberra, and she's got some interesting ideas about the way language plays a part in teaching and student learning. Good evening, Misty. Good evening to you. You've got a joke. I wanted to start with this. It's an old. It's an old joke. It's probably not a very good joke. Maybe people would say it's not even a joke at all. But I understand there's a joke you have about the mafia mobster and the sociologist. Tell us the joke and why it's significant for you in terms well, of language. Yeah, well, it's that an old joke that your listeners may have heard. What do you get when you cross a sociologist with a mafia mobster? And the answer is an offer you can't understand. And it's having a bit of a go at all of those ologists out there, those psychologists and biologists and uh, all of those ologists who maybe use a language that's really specific to their discipline, but which keeps the rest of us out and we can't really understand what they're talking about most of the time. Now, you've actually made a point about this and said that Uh, In fact, different disciplines do use different languages. And if we turn to the high school classroom, uh, students will be studying different subjects in different discipline areas all through the year, science, maths, for example, literature, history, and each uses a different language in a different way. And you've suggested, at least my understanding, is that they need to be able to negotiate this this, language diversity of languages. Give us some examples of of the way you would describe this. Yeah, so it's true that the reason those disciplines, those ologists use the language the way they do is not just because they've they've got some specific vocab that's specific to their discipline. They actually um, negotiate their understanding of the world in different ways. So scientists and mathematicians, for example, don't like a lot of redundancy. So they don't like a lot of elaborations. You won't find a um, in their language that they use. So you won't find um, a science report starting with um, on a late 
sultry afternoon in my science lab eye. Perhaps it should. (laughs) Elaborated circumstances, and neither will you hear I. The person, the writer, is really inconsequential in a scientific report or uh, in a mathematical report. But you you hear the I a lot in literature. So in the English classroom, um, students are often asked to um, put put their person in their story, to hear their voice in their story. And yet 40 minutes later, they'll go to their um, science class and be told, keep your voice out of this. We don't want to hear your voice. This must be an objective piece of writing. In fact, the way you structure your lab report must show us that your methods prove that this is objective. Um, So not only are the words different, and I think most people recognise that words are different in, in the science than they are in history, for example, but actually the way you structure your sentences, the order in which phrases go in your sentences, the kinds of phrases and clauses you're allowed to use in each of those disciplines, as well as the entire structure of the text is really different in each of the disciplines. Now imagine a high school student actually is probably skipping from one uh, language to the next maybe six times in a day. Mm. That's a big ask. And unfortunately, mostly high school discipline teachers aren't really aware of how their language is so specific because, in fact, that is the language that they use all of the time. So they're not really thinking about what's going on in the history class or in the math class or the science class. They're just really focused on what they're doing. Uh, so that makes it a challenge for a student to negotiate their way through the school day. And you've uh, you've got a saying that uh, you're, that has a lot of resonance with you. you you've said that all teachers are teachers of language. Why do you say that? Yeah, so... I say that, but I have to say when I do, when I first say that to high school teachers, and I do a lot of work in schools, uh, I can see the science and the math teachers rolling their eyes because they're, you know what, I'm not a language teacher, I'm a math teacher, I'm a science teacher, um, isn't it the English teacher's job to do that language stuff? Uh, so I'm not saying they're literacy teachers, I'm not saying they have to teach their kids how to read and write. I'm saying they have to initiate them into the language of their discipline. An English teacher actually doesn't know how maths language works. Um, It's a maths teacher that knows it. And I tell maths and science and history teachers that if you love your discipline and you want your kids to love your discipline as much as you do, if you want them to love science the way that you do, then you really should let them in on the language. Now, how do you um, how do you go about doing this? Uh, I mean, I guess there are actual practical things that teachers would have to do. And what what do you, what do you suggest? So, um, the first thing that teachers have to realise is to to understand actually how it is that the the language is working in their discipline. Because once you've been a math teacher or ensconced in mathematics or science for all of your undergraduate degree, really, and now all of your teaching life, you're often not aware of those language structures. They've actually never really been pointed out to you. So, for example, um, I'll throw in a grammatical term here. In science, we use the passive voice quite a lot. Um, so the passive voice means that we don't we want the action um, in the in the sentence not to necessarily have a person who does the action. So if I can give an example, if I say that glass is made by melting uh, by heating sand and other minerals, 
that's a passive voice because mm. glass is made by this. So this happens to the glass. I'm not interested in who makes the glass. I'm not writing an essay on workers in glass factories. So I'm not saying workers make glass by. Mm. Mm. Uh, because I'm not interested in the people doing the action, I'm interested in what's happening in that action, I have to use the passive voice. And it's a real marker of an explanation in science because it's part of that thing of taking away the person from the writing and keeping it around the process. But that's not an easy construction and it's not a natural construction. So kids don't speak like that. They mm. need to be shown how to write like that. And I often see, in fact, it's come home with my own son from his high school class, an instruction from the science teacher saying, uh, write your report, your lab report, in the passive voice. And I know that the um, science teacher herself doesn't know what the passive voice is, and many science teachers have told me that, oh, yeah, we know that that's what you're supposed to ask for. We don't actually know mm. what it is. Um, if they don't know what it is, then they can't teach the kids, and they really need to. They mm. need to have models, to show models and show how the language is working and really to explain why. Why do we do that? Why is it that we write like that in science and we don't write, I made the glass, mm. why mm. mm. Yeah, look, it's uh, extremely interesting the way you're talking about it and obviously very complex, and I think one of the things that uh, that you've raised is that when students are involved in this, there's a, there's a question of the language and there's a question of conceptualization, and th those two things can be confused. In other words, they can get the language wrong and as a result get the concepts wrong, or maybe they've got the concepts in their head, but they're not using the language in the way that, say, the discipline might be using it. Yeah, you make a really good point, because really what I'm describing there is a real abstraction of language, and that abstraction is accompanying a more abstraction of concepts in science. So in primary school, the concepts in science are quite concrete and the language used to describe them is quite concrete and that's true in maths as well. But there's a real shift when you move into high school. There's no longer this kind of concrete doingness about what you do in your classroom to, um, to solve a maths problem. You're now expected to understand the maths concept in the abstract and therefore use abstract language to describe it. That's a shift in two areas. You're, re you're so correct in identifying it. It's a shift not only in your mathematical or your science thinking, but language shifts as well in mm. order to describe that thinking. Look, uh, this raises uh, uh, probably another conversation. Maybe we could have that at, at another stage. But, you know, of course, uh, there's a lot of things, that, especially at university level, talking about, in, well, the disciplines are starting to become, I suppose, more porous and, and the boundaries between disciplines. And a lot of talk, particularly over the last 25 years or so, about what they call interdisciplinarity. Yeah. And, um then there's then there's increasingly, I suppose, a, another layer of of complexity that that has to be dealt with as well. There is. It's a little bit like um, two two languages learning how to talk to each other, but then also learning how um, they could perhaps cooperate together to describe new understandings. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting area because it's not just interdisciplinarity, but it's also intertextuality. So the way in which language might then fuse together to be able to be able to describe these new understandings that we hope 
happens when two disciplines get together and talk to each other. Let me finally ask you go, to go right back to my opening remarks about the uh, report, and I'm sure you've heard the reports as well yeah. about uh, the decline in maths and science uh, results. Do you think, and th- this is obviously a big question for you, but an awareness of language, the way you're talking about it, language frameworks in terms of discipline areas might help improve those dismal test results? I, I think I think it, it's inevitable that they would. And the reason I think this is because um, maths in particular, but science always, but maths in particular in the last 15 years has really shifted in the way... Um, it's assessed and what constitutes understanding in maths now. So once upon a time, maths used to be assessed by um, number solutions and sentences on a page that you solved through number. And there was not much word involved. But in the last 15 years, in an effort to make um, maths more applicable to real life, there's, maths is now situated in very wordy word problems. Um, and so kids need to be able to negotiate those word problems. And they're not really written in very everyday language. They're written in quite a mathematical mm. um, viewpoint. There's not a lot of redundancy. If you miss the word, you miss the entire instruction. And yet there's a lot of words you need to read in order to understand what the what the task is. And I had a look at some of those higher performing um, nations from from Australia and I was interested to read their curricula as stated on the the website of the um, the test that they did that was called the Tim's test and I noted that so many of them including Northern Ireland which was way outperforming that's an English-speaking country that outperformed Australia uh, paid a lot of attention in their early curriculum on problem solving and application mm. uh, and that means language. Like, you, you can't get away from it. You, you, maths can't just be number. It has to be language. Well, look, it's been really interesting talking to you, Misty, and I really appreciate your coming on to Communication Mixdown. And perhaps next year we can catch up again at some, to- at some yeah. point. More than happy to. Thanks very much. That was Misty Adonayoo, and she's an associate professor of language and literacy at the University of Canberra, and she researches and writes on a broad range of educational issues. We're Communication Mixdown. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 242. 
Global Street Party. Saturday, the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Now, let's turn from the world of uh, the classroom, the language of the classroom, to the language of the street. And uh, this is the F-word segment of the show. So be warned, we're not going to say the F-word as such, but we're going to be talking a little bit about it, and more particularly, when and where it can be said and used in the public domain. Elise Methvin researches and writes on swearing as a form of communication and the use and misuse of laws directed at offensive language. Good evening, Elise. Good evening, Elise. Hi, sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I certainly can. Now, you've been looking at uh, the use of the F word at public rallies and protests and what happens when offensive language laws are invoked. Just to give us a little bit of context, tell us about the traditional marriage rally in Sydney last year that got your attention. Okay, so last year there was a rally which was pro what I guess you could call in inverted commas traditional marriage. So in other words, marriage between a man and a woman. And it was organised by Reverend Fred Nile. Uh, and a number of other Christian groups. And what happened is that a number of people organised a counter-protest to advocate for same-sex marriage uh, at this protest. And in this counter-protest, a number of the activists uh, used the F-word in protesting against the, I guess, traditional marriage rallies. So... Police were standing nearby and observing this protest and this counter-protest. And after the F word was said a few times, once in a chant, uh, where the counter-protesters also called the protesters bigots. Um, so, so once in a chant and also a number of times uh, by individuals over a loudspeaker and the police arrested these uh, pro-same-sex marriage counter-protesters for using offensive language in a public place. And as I understand it, the uh, the charges stuck and they went to a magistrate and the magistrate dismissed the charges. What's the significance of that? Okay, so that's correct. So it went to the magistrate, which in uh, New South Wales local court proceedings are the lowest court proceedings. Uh, and there were charges brought under the criminal law, under the Summary Offences Act, New South Wales. There's a similar, similar act in Victoria, uh, also, which prohibits indecent or uh, obscene or insulting language. So, uh, so these charges were brought before the magistrate, and the magistrate ultimately said that 
uh, the charges should be dismissed, that the F-word was not offensive in the context in which it was used. And that's quite important. Um, the, magistr the magistrate said, uh, Magistrate Brad said, that the F-word is defined in the dictionary, so you can find it in the dictionary in full and not just the F-word. Mm. And it's used in multiple phrases. Um, so he gave a number of those instances of those phrases uh, in full. And then he said, look, here it was used in a counter-protest. Uh, it wasn't used necessarily to uh, in an offensive manner. So he did take the fact that it was used in a political protest into account. And, and do you think uh, what he did is in terms of dismissing the charges, is that... Um, in legal, in a legal sense, is that a precedent? So, so in a sense that 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 ch kind of charge can't be brought again, or how does that work? No, so it's not a precedent as such, and that's because it's in the lowest court of the court hierarchy. So, just say if it had been a Supreme Court decision, or even a New South Wales District Court decision, it would have been more persuasive. And anyway, what the magistrate was really saying was something that courts have said all along since obscene and indecent language charges were enacted in the 1850s. And that is that offensive language or obscene language depends on the context in which it is used. Uh, so there are often a whole lot of, I guess, stereotypes that judges rely on. For example, it would be offensive to use swear words in front of children or in front of the elderly now, my research actually tries to unpack some of these stereotypes with linguistic research, which says actually children know swear words from a very young age and often from the home, say the ages of one or two. Yes, I can, so I can vouch for that. problem here generally. <laughs> uh, at least I can vouch for that. <laughs> Exactly, and I think most parents can and most people can. They know that children do know these words, mm. but... The law does continue to rely on these, I guess, folk linguistic myths about offensive language. And because it's framed so broadly, uh, offensive language, sorry, a language is offensive if it offends the reasonable person, if it arouses disgust mm. or anger or resentment in the mind of the reasonable person. That means that two different uh, magistrates might come to a very different conclusion. So perhaps in a month's time, another magistrate mm. might say, well, actually, I find in this particular context, mm -hmm. the words were offensive. Yes. And you mentioned uh, the, the, uh, the laws in New South Wales. Just a, just a general question. Is, is it different in each state, is it? In other words, Victoria would be different than New South yeah. Wales and so on? It is. I mean, there are some general propositions that exist throughout the states and territories. So generally, words, sorry, generally uh, there are provisions that are criminal provisions, not civil provisions. So they make it a crime to use offensive or indecent or insulting language in a public place mm. or near or within hearing from a public place. Now, generally, courts rely on context, so the context or circumstances in which the words were used. Uh, and also, they say that a word is not necessarily indecent. So it would be wrong at law to say the F word or the C word, for that matter, is necessarily indecent. It just depends on the context 
yes. in which it is used. I wanted to turn back to the political protests because uh, back in the day, and I'm speaking from my experience in Victoria, there used to be uh, not many protest rallies against the Abbott government. And I used to see lots of T-shirts with the F word, F Tony Abbott on the front. Um, I imagine there's going to be lots of those kinds of things going on in the United States with F Donald Trump on the on the front and signs going up as well. And there probably are. What? Where does the law stand on those kinds of um, those kinds of um, uh, messages? Say, for example, messages. if you, yeah, yeah, if if you say, for example, on a T-shirt or or holding up a sign. Yeah, sure. So there, the relevant charge would probably be one of offensive conduct or disorderly conduct. Again, it depends on the context. And someone could say, here, the F word was used in political protest. It was used to distinctly communicate quite a direct message, which might be one's discontentment, one's strong Mm -hmm. uh, discontentment in relation to certain policies that a politician might have, say Trump or Abbott, for example. So, uh, so, again, it would be entirely up to the police officer who can issue an on-the-spot fine, and they can do that in Victoria uh, and New South Wales, or uh, or the magistrate who is deciding uh, the matter to decide whether or not that was offensive. But there are some cases which suggest uh, that in the context of a political protest, one should be less likely to conclude that words are offensive because... This idea of this idea that a strong society, a strong democracy is one that allows for dissenting voices, even if to some those voices might be quite unpleasant. Yes. And finally, let let me, uh, I guess this is a a news story, a news report that you've been following as well as recently there's been a, a lot of discussion about swearing in terms of its use by men and women. And uh, the, the, this report is, suggests that swearing is, is much wider in its use and much more acceptable. What impact do you think that would have on uh, the way offensive language laws are being used and executed? Yeah, so I guess swearing used to be quite a taboo subject to research. So linguistic researchers and sociologists and legal researchers wouldn't touch the subject because they were afraid it might sully their academic reputation. But now, I guess, as we're more open-minded about these things or we realise, hey, they are words um, and they're not inherently offensive, society makes them offensive, Uh, we start to, I guess, have a more open-minded discussion and, and there's more and more research which does suggest that, yes, both men and women swear young people swear, old people swear, but also that different cultures might swear differently uh, and that perhaps those cultural differences should be taken into account, especially when the law decides to criminalise conduct. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of research out there to suggest that um, a number of Aboriginal people use swear words such as the F word and the C word uh, more frequently and in a much less offensive way in amongst themselves uh, than what some other people might consider to be offensive. But again, society's uh, standards are changing so much that perhaps now that research, you could say actually all of society is, is starting to be a bit more comfortable with the use of the C word 
and the F word. I'm sure many of the listeners will disagree with me on that one, especially (laughs) when it comes to the C word. Yes, that's... You know, everyone does have a strong opinion on this matter. Elise, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure talking to you and also very interesting discussion that uh, that we're having and, and uh, interesting research that you're involved in as well. So thanks so much for being with Communication Mixdown. Thanks, John. And I'm talking there with Elise Methvin, and she teaches in the law faculty at Macquarie University and has done extensive research into the social and legal aspects of swearing. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixed Down. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixed Down. Cranking up right here on 3CR. Burse, burse.